it's funny because a lot of times we say like, oh, social media, all these great new ways that campaigns can interact with people. I feel like we like that as a supplement, but nobody's as thrilled about it yeah. Oh, to only exclusively be using Zoom and social media as a way to connect with voters. That makes it really hard. Stay tuned. That's just part of what's ahead in our bonus content following this week's edition of In Focus. Exploring the issues that matter most in Indiana. This is In Focus with Dan Spieler. It's certainly a little strange on this day before Memorial Day to see the Indianapolis Motor Speedway sitting empty. The Indy 500 postponed till August. This is the state moves into stage three of its back on track plan to reopen Indiana's economy. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dan Spieler. This past week, Governor Holcomb officially signed the executive order moving the state of Indiana into stage three of that plan. We've earned um, the ability, I should say, the ability to continue to move forward. Also this week, new unemployment figures show the state at 16.9 percent now higher than the national average. Speaking of the economy this week, we again had the opportunity to take some of your concerns straight to our elected officials in Washington and here at home. During our latest virtual town hall, me and my colleagues Bob Donaldson and Fanchin Stinger asked Representative Susan Brooks and Andre Carson about the HEROES Act. Congressman Carson, you voted for it. Congresswoman Brooks, you voted against the bill. So I want to hear some of the top reasons you voted the way you did. And Congressman Carson, I'll start with you. Well, for me, um, the HEROES Act um, honors our heroes. It provides uh, nearly a trillion dollars to local, state, and territorial uh, and tribal governments who desperately need uh, those funds to help vital workers like first responders, healthcare workers, teachers, uh, and those who are front, on the front lines keeping us safe. Uh, it establishes a HEROES Fund for essential workers. We're talking over $200 billion. Uh, it supports uh, testing, tracing, and, and, and treatment. It also provides additional direct payments, uh, cushioning the economic blow uh, that the coronavirus has uh, put on so many Americans, yeah. especially Hoosiers. Uh, Congresswoman Brooks, uh, why did you vote against it, and might you support Senator Young's Restart Act instead? Well, uh, thank you for the question, Dan. Um, I think that uh, we knew that this was truly a messaging bill, a starting place for the House Democrats and for Speaker Pelosi. Um, it was crafted um, not in a bipartisan way uh, at all. It was There were no committee hearings. There were really no discussions. The bill was an 1,800-page bill that was put before us in just a couple of days. The summary was 90 pages in and of itself. And so while there are some things certainly that are in the bill that I would agree with and I believe that um, we will find bipartisan agreement on, it truly was a huge wish list um, from the other side. And there was no debate and really no discussion about it. And that's why it went down almost exclusively on uh, party lines. But I do think uh, we will, and both sides of the aisle are definitely negotiating and debating and discussing now um, in various uh, meetings and various hearings that we're beginning to have. Um, and we're certainly having a lot of communications with our colleagues over in the Senate. And right. so now I think the Senate will actually craft a package, probably taking some of what was in that bill, yeah. certainly, and we do need to honor our heroes. And I agree with 
my friend, Congressman Carson, we absolutely need to honor our heroes on the front lines. We need to make sure that they are getting supported, but we need to make sure it doesn't go far beyond COVID. Okay. And yeah. that's what this bill did. It oh. went far beyond the impacts of, of the COVID pandemic. All right, we'll certainly see what happens next on that. Fanchin? Well, next we do want to get to a question from one of our viewers. Congressman Brooks, as Indiana and states around the country begin to now reopen, Judy from Carmel wants to know, how do you balance the cost of human lives with legitimate concerns about helping our economy? Once again, Congresswoman Brooks. Well, I think there is, uh, there is not a public official at any level of government who is not incredibly concerned about human lives and about the safety of those lives. And that's why it's very important that we do what we can to uh, boost the uh, PPE materials that are available, that we do what we can to educate how to make our workplaces as safe as they possibly can be. Same question to you. How do we balance health and human lives keeping the economy strong? It is certainly a balancing act. We want to see our Hoosier businesses strengthen. Uh, I agree with my colleague Susan's point. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm very alarmed by the statements that argue that we need to put our vulnerable populations at risk in order to save the economy. Uh, I strongly reject uh, these statements as callous and un-American. Uh, if we follow the scientific advice from public health professionals, um, I think we can continue to support our small businesses, but we'll also be able to protect public health and support our economy at the same time. Right now, we want to welcome to the conversation Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett, Fisher's Mayor Scott Fadness, and the Mayor of Evansville, Lloyd Winicky. We are also joined by South Bend Mayor James Mueller, Mayor Duke Bennett of Terre Haute, and Fort Wayne Mayor Tom Henry. You know, some local governments have been asking for more federal relief funds to get through this pandemic. But I want to play this clip now from Indiana U.S. Senator Mike Braun, who today says he doesn't necessarily support that. If you're expecting a bailout for pensions and for the fact that you don't have rainy day funds, have balanced budgets like we do in Indiana, I don't think that's going to fly. Uh, Mayor Bennett, I want to start with you here. Should city governments expect more federal financial assistance to help out? Well, no. I, from my perspective, I think it's important that the federal government help us to deal with the things that are directly related to COVID-19 and this coronavirus. And so... You know, we've been hit very hard with property tax caps. We're still dealing with that today, even though that started in 2009. So we don't have a lot of reserves. My concern is moving forward um, with the loss of MBH and LRS, um, loss of local option income tax, food and beverage tax that's paying for our convention center. Um, the property taxes seem to come in, come in a little bit better than I thought they might uh, this past week. But it's going to we're going to get us is down the road a little bit. Right sure. now, we're okay, and I'm not looking for any assistance from the federal government already other than a reimbursement for those expenses that we've had that right. are directly related to this uh, pandemic. Okay. Across the aisle here politically, Mayor Hogg said, I want to get your take on this budget issue as well and whether cities uh, should expect more federal financial assistance moving forward. Well, we look uh, forward to partnering with both state and federal government uh, as the economic uh, effects of the pandemic uh, continue to manifest themselves. Uh, frankly, uh, Indianapolis uh, entered 2020 in a very strong fiscal position. We've passed uh, three consecutive years of fully balanced budgets, so we were uh, as well prepared as we could have been. Now, uh, the truth is, 
if we could work with people like Congressman Carson and Congresswoman Brooks and the other members of Congress to loosen some of the uh, restrictions in monies that have already been allocated uh, to local government. I know that the city of Indianapolis will be receiving uh, sub substantial federal support. Sure. But the definition uh, of how that money can be used is so narrow, it would certainly improve us uh, if those uh, uh, if those restrictions were loosened a bit. Senator Mike Braun had talked about the role of the CDC moving forward, and he had said that he would prefer to have local entities, mayors, governors, local entities make some of these decisions moving forward on reopening. How do you strike that balance between getting guidance from the federal government and doing what's best for your community? I'll start with you, Mayor Mueller. This is a loaded question. Certainly, local governments are closest to the needs and what's going on, uh, what's happening in, in, in our cities and in, in our economy. And it goes back to the comment you raised earlier about Senator Braun, where he doesn't think we need to bail out local and state governments. And certainly we can't count on Congress to come through for us because oftentimes they don't. But I would love to bring Senator Braun and show him what the real need is. If he were anywhere close to front lines, he would know this isn't bailouts for pensions or whatever talking points they're using to talk against the, you know, helping state and local governments. And it also shows we didn't learn the lesson from the financial crisis just 10 years ago, where there was insufficient help for state and local governments. And that led to a long, slow recovery. So this is, this is going to lead to a contraction in state and local governments that's going to prolong the recovery if they don't do this. So that's just that's the first part. The second part is the frustration that somehow this notion that a global pandemic is best managed at the local level. I mean, first the president punted and now the governor punted to the local governments to manage the pandemic. I mean, does this make any sense to anyone that like, for example, well, we're, we're the largest cities uh, represented here in Indiana, but there are a lot of smaller cities that are now being res held responsible to manage uh, I, I, I a do, public health crisis at the global level. I do want to bring in another voice. Uh, uh, Mayor Bennett, what, what is your view on, on the balance between the federal and the local involvement? I think it's a mix across the board. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, where the information's coming from, like the CDC or whether it's the state health or, or local health department here, the Beagle County Health Department. I think it's important that all those resources and all that information flows to us as leaders to be able to make local decisions. It's, it's there, as we talked about earlier, there's a lot of differences between cities and regions about where we're at in this process and when it's time to do certain things. We've got to take advantage of all those resources. And I still like having local control. I'm always going to be big on having as much local control as we can get with support from the state and the federal government. Mayor Fadness, I'll bring you into the conversation. I mean, how do you recover from some of the, uh, the revenue that you've lost from some of the events that, that had to be canceled? Well, we're not there yet. Uh, I think we're still in the middle of the car accident, not yet knowing how bad the damage is to the car. I think um, from a financial perspective, all of us don't know yet the extent of the damage done. It has hit our city extraordinarily hard, largely because of our urban dense population. Uh, and, and, and it is understandable why we would not necessarily be on the same uh, trajectory that the state is. Mayor Winicky, I see you nodding there as Mayor Hogsett uh, discusses some of the differences there with the capital city. 
Well, I, Joe's absolutely right. I mean, there are big differences between all of our cities. I mean, Evansville is the third largest city in the state. We have about 225 cases, period. Hmm. I mean, that's, I mean, I, and we're, we don't want more, but we're, we are really fortunate to not have more. For Mayor Tom Henry in Fort Wayne, the second largest city in the state of Indiana, and you seem to have had proportionally fewer cases and deaths than other parts of the state. Why do you think that is? I think we were very fortunate in having a very progressive board of health who I think it really exhibited a lot of vision when they began to see what was happening elsewhere outside of the state of Indiana. All right, a lot to talk about there. You can see our entire town hall online. Just click on In Focus. Coming up, we're talking about the latest news involving Curtis Hill and the race for attorney general. But up next, we're talking about next month's primary. And I'll go one-on-one -on -one with one of the leading candidates in the 5th District congressional race. And I'm joined now by State Senator Victoria Sparts, a candidate for Congress in the 5th Congressional District. Senator Sparts, how has this coronavirus crisis changed the way you have to campaign in this race? And what would you do if elected to help get us through the aftermath of this crisis next year? I think this crisis brings very unique challenges because, you know, I'm a person who likes to be on the ground, meet with people, and our session ended in mid-March, so I didn't have as many opportunities to do it, so we do more things remotely. As related to the virus, I think it could be, it's very unique situations what we're dealing with, and we can look at it as an opportunity how we can be better in the future, how we can look back and say, you know what, there is some innovation that happened during this crisis. So I think there are a lot of things that we'll have to look in a positive way, but we also have to look, you know, a lot of policy the government set up were after 9-11 to deal with a crisis like a terrorist attack. We never really thought through how can we deal with the crisis that lasts for a few months or longer. So do we have a mechanism to deal with that? How can branches can collaborate? How we want to make sure that all of the rights right. that people protected. So I think there is a lot of things we can look at that, okay. be better, more agile. Your opponent, Carl Brizzy, has been critical of your finances, questioning the source of uh, that $750,000 uh, you gave to your campaign. What can you say about those questions that he has been raising, and can you tell us more about the source of that funding? Well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, it's kind of unfortunate part of politics. That's why we have a lot of people that don't want to run for offices, but people really don't have a record to run on, or it's not a very good record. They start attacking your record or other things about you, and personally, you know, and as I said a few times, all of the, each candidate actually uh, Carl Brizzy was late quite a bit, but each candidate had to file a financial disclosure statement. It's a public statement. This is just some politics, you know, and I know that Carl is very upset, but voters will decide who will better represent me, him, or anyone else. How do you respond to those uh, who might suggest uh, that, that you might be further right than uh, the district is now? It's interesting because 
people always say that, but I have a lot of legislation and the state Senate that I had a lot of Democrats supporting. I only represent the people that voted for me and I'm not going to be pushed by anyone else. And I think that's a lot of people respect even from other party in my views. And um, I actually went on the radio in Anderson recently and I got some feedback that some Democrats were surprised that actually my answer had some common sense. You know, and, you know, they say, oh, my gosh, you know, we don't have too much common sense in Congress. So but we better get some more early voting underway next week. Absentee voting already underway. State Senator Victoria Sparts, uh, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate having me. We'll be right back. And welcome back. It's time now to bring in our panel to talk about this week's top stories. Joining us online this week, Laura Wilson, Pete Seat and Robin Winston. Let's start with you, Indy political science professor, Dr. Laura Wilson. Laura, we're moving into stage three. We're also moving towards the Indiana primary with early in-person voting next week. Question for our panel today. Are we ready? Uh, that is a big question, and I don't think you ever know for sure if you're ready. Uh, the Indy Star recently reported the number of intensive care unit beds have gone down in terms of demand. Ventilators still seem to be about the same. I, it does seem like things are getting a little bit better in terms of the need from a public health perspective, but no doubt it's going to have an, a, an impact on the primary. And in particular, I'm looking at turnout. I have a hard time seeing how people are as motivated and as excited to get out, despite the fact that we moved it from May now into June. And so that'll certainly be something important yeah. to take a look at, especially as we come closer and closer now. Robin, Pete, what are your uh, concerns? Robin, I'll start with you. Well, first off, I'm excited uh, about the turnout that's a result of absentee ballot applications. Over 400,000 fellow Hoosiers have taken the time to fill out an application to cast their vote by absentee ballot. That is record setting. Typically, you have about six to eight percent of the vote being done that way this time we're way up in some communities we think in some communities that as many as 80 percent of the votes cast will be done uh, by people doing it uh, by absentee ballot so that bodes well for those of us who have argued that we should be doing that in the future as far as as far as turnout uh, i think there's going to be some people that are still going to go and be in line to vote at the polls i've talked to people who think it's their first fundamental right and they also have their a courageous ability to say that they want to show up and vote on June 2nd. Well, Pete, I'll turn to you when it comes both to the primary and to this uh, next stage, stage three. Are, are we ready? Yes, I think we're ready. And we're ready because of the great work that Governor Holcomb, Dr. Box and their team have been doing. I have full confidence in them that they are leaving no stone unturned, that they are looking at the data on the ground in real time. And we put together a methodical step-by-step -step plan that Mike Pence himself called the best state plan in the entire country. So I think we are here and, and we're moving into stage three two days early, which is a testament to all the great work that we've been doing around the state. As far as the primary goes, I think we're in a position for a successful primary election. Of course, primary turnout tends to be suppressed anyway, uh, but we're seeing on the Republican side of the aisle over 20 percent of those who are voting absentee have never voted in a Republican primary before. So that bodes well for turnout and uh, and for what will ultimately happen on June 2nd. All right, let's talk about some of the political headlines here. We are your local election headquarters, and we're talking today about that race for attorney general. A.G. Curtis Hill serving a 30-day suspension right now, but he won an initial court battle with the governor over whether 
or not his suspension constitutes a vacancy with more lawsuits now being filed on that same question. Meantime, this week, a big name candidate officially got into the race for attorney general, talking about congressman and former secretary of state Todd Rokita. So, Pete, uh, keeping it there with you, how might this all play out here at the GOP convention, a virtual convention here this summer? Well, in my expert opinion and analysis, we'll see. Um, I think it's still <laughs> to be seen what exactly will happen. Todd Rakita is certainly a formidable candidate. He's won two statewide general elections, but most importantly, he won a multi-candidate contested convention race. Conventions are obviously very different than primaries. There's a narrower pool of people, in this case about 1,700, who will get to make uh, the decision of who the nominee for attorney general will yeah. be. And there won't be the arm twisting and the cajoling that happens on, on the floor of the convention because it will all be done virtually. So right. we'll see, have to see how the candidates handle that. All right, Robin, quickly your thoughts. First off, my thoughts are that it's clear that the governor does not want Curtis Hill to be their, their nominee. They've tried everything possible from trying to do legislation to going back to the Supreme Court to say, what can we do about this? Now there's a lawsuit. It's appropriate attorney general lawsuit there and seem to be in court a lot. What's positive on our side is we have Jonathan Weinzappel, the former mayor of Evansville, former state representative running, Karen Tallian, a, a state senator with an outstanding record. Yeah. I believe that if Curtis Hill is their nominee or whoever their nominee is, because of the disarray, we're going to be very viable and strong this fall for attorney general. We'll see how it plays out. Laura, quickly, uh, 10, 15 seconds here. What else do you have your eye on here as we head into this primary and this election year across Indiana? Sure. Well, certainly the primary, the 5th Congressional District yeah. on both sides, really exciting with candidates and competition. A lot of candidates. Watching. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I think in terms of uh, people talked about voter turnout and uh, voting by mail, there's always this argument about whether or not it makes it more accessible and easier for people yeah. to exercise that right. So it'll be neat to see whether or not people utilize it and what those numbers look like after the fact. We'll see what happens. Guys, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Much more to come on Fox News Sunday and Face the Nation. We'll see you next week. So Laura mentioned the uh, the fifth district race there, Pete, a lot of candidates in that congressional primary. And obviously, it seems as if uh, a lot of money here has been uh, has been put out in the race here in recent weeks. We had State Senator Victoria Sparts on the show. What impact uh, do ads have in a race like this? Obviously, she's been backed by the Club for Growth here in a campaign where people can't get out and meet voters face to face. Uh, does that give her an edge here in terms of uh, some of the TV advertising that's been on the air in this fifth district race? Yeah, I think there's an embarrassment of riches in terms of how many really good, solid candidates are running for this nomination. But unfortunately, we can only pick one as a party to go up against the Democrat. I think because of what's happening with the coronavirus, it certainly gives a self-funding candidate like Victoria Sparks a leg up. And it doesn't hurt that the Club for Growth has spent over $300,000 on air on her behalf already. And it, there's a big hurdle to climb, a big hill to climb for these other candidates who are not nearly as well funded in the next couple of days. Robin, uh, when you look at that fifth district race, obviously Democrats are, are hoping uh, to pick that seat up and flip it for the first time from red to blue. Uh, what are your thoughts looking at this crowded primary here in the fifth district? Well, we have a crowded primary on our side and some outstanding candidates. Please keep in mind, uh, uh, Dan and your viewers, that this district, as it is drawn now, was won by Joe Donnelly as recent as 2018. So 
That is one reason that it's gotten on the radar screen at the national level. But we have candidates that are seasoned and that are running very good campaigns. And we're going to have a good we're going to have a good nominee to go up against whomever comes out of the cast of Ben Hur on the other side. Uh, Laura, you mentioned this race. I, I think certainly one to watch in the fall. Um, uh, what what kind of a what kind of dynamic will the coronavirus and national politics play in a race like this? Yeah, it's always hard to say, but I'm really fixated on the way the campaigns have had to shift um, going to online. And it's funny because a lot of times we say like, oh, social media, all these great new ways that campaigns can interact with people. I feel like we like that as a supplement, but nobody's as thrilled about it Oh, to only exclusively be using Zoom and social media as a way to connect with voters. That makes it really hard. There's no kissing babies or shaking hands or knocking on doors, things like that. So I think how they respond to that, which candidates are ultimately most effective, we talked about money being really influential here too. Coming out of that, uh, you know, primaries, especially if people are less likely to participate in the primary. I, I can see this being one where you have more of the extremes um, voting in the primaries that might yield more extreme candidates. And then I think it's going to great lead for a great conversation in the general election. Um, certainly if you have those kind of differences. And I love, this is a lot of great candidates, both sides of the aisle, a lot of different dynamics going on. So of course, we'll see who the ultimate candidates are. Uh, but I, I think when you take those things into consideration, it's it's still going to be a great competitive race after the primary as we look forward to that November general election. And obviously in a presidential election year, national politics will always uh, dominate the headlines as well. And Pete and Robin, it seemed as if uh, both President Trump and uh, Joe Biden had some moments they might have wanted to take back this past week. Uh, where are we here uh, in this race for president amidst all the headlines uh, coming fast and furious this, this week? Pete, I'll start with you. Yeah, we thought a virtual campaign was going to be boring. I think this week put that uh, on both sides. But what you're seeing emerge is, you know, Donald Trump wants this to be a choice between him and Joe Biden. And Joe Biden wants this to be a referendum on Donald Trump. Of course, it's going to be more and more of a choice if Joe Biden continues to make gaffes from his basement in Delaware rather than a referendum. And of course, when it comes to the referendum side of the equation, we'll have to see how the economy improves and whether or not we're able to get back on track as a country come November. Robin? Well, first off, uh, this whole campaign cycle has been tremendous because Ordinarily, you wouldn't see Joe Biden on Stephen Colbert's show. You wouldn't see him on other shows on, on television. But they've made the candidates more accessible because you no longer can say we're flying from Boston to Detroit and we don't have time to do it. You can make up a lot. You can make a lot of media appearances. I wouldn't be surprised, Dan, that as we get closer to June 2nd, that some people are not offered up your way. But I, I do think that uh, what's happened with the president is, and Pete's an expert in this, worked in the White House, Rarely do you pull the president back from press briefings because of their misstatements and mistakes. So I'm seeing Donald Trump have to retool his campaign. He would love to get out there and campaign, but unfortunately for him, uh, we have a little thing called a, a pandemic to address, and that should be job one, not politics. All right, Laura Wilson, Pete Seat, Robin Winston, thank you all so much. We appreciate your time. We hope you have a great weekend. We wish we were out at IMS uh, this weekend, but we hope we can uh, be there again soon, obviously, with the race now postponed until August. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Please remember, please remember Memorial Day and the veterans you serve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hope you all have a great Memorial Day weekend. Take care.